Well, good morning. Today we are going to be discussing the second half of 1 Corinthians 7. The message last week was, was about marriage, and we talked about, it was focused on married people. We talked about what it has, the Bible has to say to married people about fasting, about physical relationships with each other, husband and wife, uh, also about separation and divorce. And even specifically for Christians who are married to other Christians and for Christians who are married to non-Christians who are facing some challenging situations. One thing I didn't mention in the class last week is for those who want to dig deeper on that subject about what the Bible says about a divorce and remarriage, that certainly sparked quite a bit of, of discussion and back and forth considering the what's at stake with the subject. A, a good resource that I would recommend is a message given by David Berceau several years ago, available through Scroll Publishing, what the early Christians believed about divorce and remarriage. So obviously the scriptures are the standard, but if it's not clear, if we want to understand how this was understood in the beginning of the church, that's a good, good supporting documentation. But today we're talking about single people. Exactly. Adam has it right. Today we're talking about single people. And in the group here today, we're split roughly half and half marrieds and singles. But the marrieds are not off the hook because, (laughs) for two reasons. One is because those of us who are married have single children who are of marriageable age and we have to give them good, healthy advice and counsel, for one thing. The other thing is, just because we're married today, we may end up being single tomorrow. This life is like a, a mist that appear, appears and that disappears can disappear quickly. So because we are married now, there may be a time in the future where those who are married will face singlehood again through being widows or widowers. So... This pertains to us as well. Now, what I want to do on this subject here, Paul is giving instructions to married people. I want to look at what Jesus taught as the foundation for what Paul is teaching and then see how Paul gives instruction regarding what Jesus taught, either to apply it in a specific way situation, or in some cases even to go beyond what Jesus said to provide some additional information. Because after all, Jesus said in John 14, 15, 16, he said that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into all truth and would remind them of everything that he said. So we want to look at what Jesus said, and we want to also see what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to add beyond that to give us everything that we need. Paul's instructions are to two groups of single people. One is single people who have never married, who are referred to as virgins, and also uh, people whose spouses... That's right, that's right, like, like Adam, people who've never married and who are virgins, and also people whose spouses have died... In this case, he's referring to the widows. So widows and virgins would be the terms used. I'm using reading from the New King James for the New Testament. 
Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 doesn't neatly divide out the first half strictly toward the married and the second half strictly toward the singles. The two are woven together. So I want to back up and read a few verses from the first half of the chapter start, starting off, which, which apply to the singles. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to start reading verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let's go down to verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm going to read a longer passage now, which is the focus of our lesson today, from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter. So it's good to read it in context, and we'll go through this piece by piece afterwards. So starting at verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins. I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world is not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. 
But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And, I, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. <clears throat> but if any man thinks he's being, behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she's past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she's happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. The first section, verses 17 to 24, Paul talks about a number of different situations. Jew, non-Jew, the circumcised and uncircumcised, the married, the single, the slave, and the free. And what he has in common is he says whatever situation you're in when you become a Christian, you're a Jewish Christian, don't be, try to become un-Jewish. If you're, if, you're an, uh, if you're not Jewish, you don't need to get circumcised and become Jewish. If you're married, be content, stay married. If you're single, be content with that. If you're a slave, be content with that. However, he says, if you can get your freedom, do so, but don't be terribly concerned about it. And if you're free, don't become the slave of, man, of men. Now, how in the world would somebody become a slave who was free? I thought, aren't you born into slavery? Well, people could become slaves several different ways. You could get lost in a war. You could get kidnapped. But how could you become a slave? One way... One, one way that an owner could claim you as a slave. Okay, an owner could somebody could potentially could steal you or kidnap you and make you a slave that way. But the other way it could happen is you could become so deeply in debt that you would become a slave. You'd have to sell yourself basically to pay off the debt, so you'd become a slave for a period of time. Not too long ago in history, if someone got themselves deeply enough in debt, they would go to debtor's prison to pay off the debt. I mean, today, slavery is, we don't have debtor's prison, but people can, by getting themselves too heavily into debt, they can become slaves. Effectively, they can. Is it basically, you're bound, you're tied up. Debt can be like a form of slavery. So, he says, look, you want to get yourselves free to serve the Lord. That's the desire. If you're not, that's okay. But if you're free, stay free. And if you're not free, get free. But don't worry about it. Basically, being content in your situation. The other thing I notice here, he says, circumcision in, in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commands of God. 
That's the thing that matters. That God is looking for obedience. No matter what your situation in life is, that's the one thing he's looking for from everybody is an obedient heart and obedient life. Keeping God's commands, that's the thing that matters. The second section in this passage we're looking at today, verses 25 to 35, he talks about single life versus married life. Now, So being a virgin versus being married. That's right. Being a virgin versus being married. So this passage right here, uh, I'm, I'm coming... To this, I'll, I'll disclose my own background, which may cause some people to pay more close attention, may cause some people to discount what I'm saying. But I was raised Roman Catholic. And uh, so the first roughly half of my life was spent as a Roman Catholic. And the second half of my life, maybe a little more at this point in time, was spent in, in a church from the Restoration Movement, which is more, more like a Protestant-type church. And then more recently, I've had a lot of interaction with people from Anabaptist background, which is a bit different from that. And what I notice is that people from Protestant and and even Anabaptist backgrounds, when they look at this passage, the thing that they will focus on is where he says, because of the present distress. So Paul is saying it's better to be single than to be married. And he talks about the present distress. So people will say, well, obviously this idea that it's better to be single is bound up in a local situation so it doesn't really apply today because of the present distress. And they'll say, well, the present distress, perhaps they were facing some severe persecution at the time where they would say, if you don't renounce the faith, we're going to kill your spouse, we're going to kill your children, or something like that. Now, when I'm reading through 1 Corinthians and all the challenges that they're facing, I don't get the sense that at that point in time they were facing that kind of intense persecution where their lives and their families were getting torn apart for the faith. But some people will say that because because of the present situation that Paul is telling them that they need to continue. It's better to stay single because of some severe persecution that they're facing at that point in time. So I want to I want to uh, challenge that. So that one one reason people will will tend to discount this passage is because they'll say, "Oh, this is only directed at a local specific situation that Paul is talking about." And this will this logic will come back a little later when we're talking about head covering. The second reason that people will tend to discount this is an historic reason. I was raised Roman Catholic, and back particularly in the Middle Ages, the church favored celibacy and the ascetic lifestyle of of fasting and mortifying the flesh to such an extreme degree, and there were abuses by the, the clergy and the religious to such a point that during the Protestant Reformation, there was a backlash and, and going in the other direction. That's usually what happens in history, 
is one group will go so far in one direction, maybe it's control, that the other group, that, that the people who are, are sick of that will go flip to the other extreme, which may be complete yeah. lack of any yeah. control. People will, will go, will tend to swing when they're in one bad situation, one extreme situation, they'll tend to swing to the opposite extreme. And I, that's definitely happened historically, where people will look at what the Catholic Church was and they'll go to the other, the, other ex, the other extreme. The third reason that I see that the people will downplay Paul's teaching about it better to be single is because a lot of churches today, particularly Protestant churches, are peddling what I would call the soft prosperity gospel. The soft prosperity gospel is basically God really wants you to be happy in this life. And, and obviously, the happiest lifestyle that anyone could possibly lead is having a nice, loving, happy, married family with the children sitting around the table, that this is the ideal. This is the perfect life that's held up for all Christians. And, and everyone in the world, you need to flock to our church because we'll help you to have a life like that. If you have an unhappy marriage, we'll have marriage counseling, we'll have marriage retreats for you. If your children are out of control, we'll have children's classes to, to teach the children. We'll have parenting classes to teach you how to be great parents. If you're single, we'll have singles activities where we can pair you up with other singles so you can get married and embark on this happy, wonderful married life that we're in. And some people are laughing here. As ridiculous as it sounds, this is exactly what a lot of churches are doing. Now, their, their idea is let's spread the gospel. Well, the only problem is this is not the gospel. This is not the gospel that Paul was preaching. This is not the gospel that Jesus came. The gospel of anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself, Amen. take up his cross, and follow me. That is not the soft prosperity gospel. So people will discount the passages on fasting and, and holding up the single life because it doesn't mesh with what a lot of people are looking for today. So the, the three reasons, the, the, because of the present distress, saying it's only a local thing so we don't have to pay attention to it today because obviously we're not being persecuted here in America. Uh, the backlash against the abuses of the Catholic Church of pushing this too far to the other extreme, and then the soft prosperity gospel that uh, this is not what people want to hear today. So... All of these come together to basically color the way these scriptures and related ones are either ignored, avoided, or downplayed, or explained away in most Protestant churches. The goal, to me, in the lesson today is not to push us to one extreme or the other, but to lay out all the scriptures on this subject and let's simply embrace and, and, and do what they say without going to any extremes at all. To have a clear, balanced, honest perspective, not overreacting to anything. I'd like to start with what Jesus said about this subject of being single. Let's go back to Matthew 19, which is we'll, we'll pick up where we were last week.
It's a passage that does not get a lot of attention in churches that are peddling the soft prosperity gospel. Matthew chapter 19. I want to focus on the last few verses of the passage I'm going to read, but just to put it in context, we'll start over again in Matthew chapter 19 in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 12. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Verse 10, His disciples said to him, If such is the case with the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now let's stop there. Jesus could have jumped in at this point and said, Oh guys, you, you, you got it all wrong here. You misunderstood what I'm saying. He could have said, no, 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 it really is great to be married because if you're married, you're going to have a great life. So I really want you to get married. If this is discouraging you from getting married, then, then you obviously misunderstood what I said. That is not what Jesus said. He doubles down at this point on the teaching. Verse 11, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. He says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, throughout the scriptures, there are things that are intended to be taken literally and things that are intended to be taken figuratively. I can think of the classic example in John chapter 11 where Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says to the apostles, Lazarus is asleep, let's go wake him up. And they respond, assuming that to take him literally, they say, oh, he's asleep. That's good. He's sick. He's sleeping. Let him sleep. He's, and he, of course, Jesus is, is, is not talking about natural sleep. He's using the point sleep figuratively is referring to death. It's the same thing here. When he says some make themselves eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, he's not talking about men taking a knife and emasculating themselves. He's talking about 
renouncing marriage, making a decision voluntarily to effectively, figuratively make themselves eunuchs, to permanently relinquish marriage, to forego the comfort and companionship of married life, to forego having children and descendants, physical descendants after them, who will voluntarily give that up and figuratively make themselves eunuchs and do it for the sake of the kingdom of God. There are people who will do that. And he's holding that lifestyle up. That was the lifestyle of Jesus himself. That was the lifestyle of Paul. He says, I wish everyone was as I am. That wasn't the lifestyle of Peter and most of the apostles. Paul talks about that. He says, hey, I could take along, I could be married, take along a wife with me like the other apostles do. So Jesus holds this up. Now, growing up Catholic, this scripture resonates with me. On Sundays, we go to church every week. Alice and I are both raised Catholic. We go to go to church on Sunday, and there's a priest. A Roman Catholic priest is a man who has taken a vow of celibacy for life. When I was very young, I'd go to Sunday school and it would be nuns who would be teaching me, women who made the vow to, to be single for their whole life to serve God. And they gave up that whole way of life. When I was in high school, I was taught by the Christian brothers. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school and was taught by brothers. And these are men who decided that they would renounce wealth and marry life and just devote themselves to instructing young people, to education. So I understand that. Now, a lot of people will turn to 1 Timothy 4, where it says that there are some people in the future who are going to come and forbid people to marry. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3. And they'll say, well, obviously the Catholic Church is falling into this heresy. There are people who are forbidding people to marry. Now, the Catholic Church has plenty of faults, but uh, this, this is not one of them. They're not forbidding anybody to get married. Anybody... People are joining these orders voluntarily. Mm-hmm. It's like they, they don't are forbidding people to eat certain foods. If people decide that they want to voluntarily fast, no one's forcing them to do that. If people decide voluntarily they want to adopt the same lifestyle that Paul and Jesus had, okay, this is not what he's talking about here. They're not forbidding people to marry. So it's a voluntary... And I knew people... Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I remember that one day a year they'd have what they would call Vocations Day. Now, to most of my friends who are not Catholic, they'd assume, oh, they must, they probably have, uh, they probably have uh, maybe a doctor come in or a lawyer or an engineer or an auto mechanic coming, coming in and saying, here's what I do for a living. Would you like to become what I, no, no. That's not what it was. Vocations Day in the Catholic Church would mean that they bring in a Benedictine monk, they bring in a, uh, a Jesuit, they bring in a Dominican, <laughs> they bring in a, a Salesian brother, and 
they would they would pitch, they'd encourage the young men to consider of that kind of that's what vocations meant wow. in the Catholic Church. So it's it's a different world. So I knew people who uh, men uh, men particularly who made the decision that they would voluntarily give up married life. And, and all that's included with that, so that they could focus on evangelism, on missions, on teaching, on helping the poor, on working in hospitals, mm. and on prayer and intercession. That's what that's what people do. Or, and and so and I saw that as as a noble and admirable way of life. I thought, wow, if somebody really wanted to push it to the limit and live a life totally devoted to God, then I think, well, there you go. There, there, how, how can you top that? How can you beat that? So that, that, was, that was something that was held up. So I had a picture of that. So when I'm reading what Jesus is talking about, some renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom, I have a clear picture in my mind of specific people I knew who do that. On the other hand, I also got to see some of the dark side of celibate life. Uh, I remember, just to give you a little, little perspective, uh, Alice and I went on a, on a, a mission, mission trip to a, uh, uh, a country that's much poorer than the United States. And, and when we came back to, to the U.S., which, which was kind of funny to us, people acted like we're some kind of spiritual heroes. Oh, wow, gee, you, you, you went to a third world country and... Uh, uh, you must be really spiritual people to make a tremendous sacrifice like that, which we we thought was was kind of funny. We enjoyed being there. We we thought it was uh, more of a sacrifice, honestly, to come back to the United States and tell you the truth. So, but after being out on the mission field, uh, it's and the whole world's a mission field. But you know what I'm talking about. After being out on the mission field uh, and seeing a lot of people who were were out on various mission teams, one of the things I learned was. Some people go on mission trips to escape. They're escaping something. So if somebody is working in some special capacity like that, I don't assume that they're more spiritual or less spiritual. I'm just curious, well, what's the reason why you're doing this? And in many cases, they're escaping something, too. So while many people are doing it, maybe most people are doing it for wonderful reasons, that's not always the case. And guess what? The celibate lifestyle is no exception. The celibate lifestyle is a great place for people to hide out who don't want to handle the pressures of modern life, of raising a family and and showing up at a job and everything else. So while there were many people who were leading totally noble and admirable lives, I found some people in that world who had an unhappy view of marriage that they just saw married life, maybe because of the way that they grew up or the people that they hung around with, they saw married life is a lot of suffering. It's a lot of pain. And you can avoid that by leading a single life. Uh, also, you give away all your property and, and, and you live a nice, simple life where your religious order is taking care of everything. You don't have to worry about health care. You don't have to worry about paying the bills. You don't have to worry about bank accounts. You have nothing. Everything is taken care of for you. That's that. There's a certain attractiveness. Uh, there's no. There's no financial pressures. No burdens. You're not responsible for raising children and all the pressures. So it's 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 somewhat of a stress-free life. 
Some people like to devote themselves to academics and study, and that's you become a Jesuit. Bingo, there you're all set. Also, back in the in the 1960s, it, it's hard for people who weren't Catholic at that time to appreciate the incredibly elevated status that someone who was a priest or religious person would hold in the ideas of Catholics. People don't understand when when there are there are uh, stories of abuse that come out in the Catholic clergy. People don't understand, well, why didn't they just report these things? They don't understand the high position that people had of the clergy in the past of this celibate clergy. They're like a, they're like a step above everybody else. And that caused all kinds of problems. Also, to be honest with you, I also saw a few people in that world who were homosexual, That's, that had same-sex attraction. So you can understand why they would gravitate to a life that's like that. And then I also saw some people who were, were in that world for a while, and then after several years they left and decided to go to get married. So it, it, it's, it's, it's not... So I just want you to understand, I don't have rose-colored glasses when I look at the celibate life. I've seen wonderful, heroic examples, but I've also seen uh, it's a place where other, other people can hide out for very, very ignoble reasons. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. My friend David Brousseau did a lesson for scroll publishing on widows and virgins and he's he's an authority on the early church and he said it's ironic that most protestants today will take the 144,000 number figuratively i'm sorry we'll take the 144,000 number literally and the fact that they're virgins they'll take that figuratively whereas in the early church it was the other way around it, they took the, the idea that these people are virgins literally, and, but they took the 144,000 number figuratively. And look at what it says right here. They're the ones who are not defiled with women. They're virgins. They're ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So Jesus talked about there would be some people who would renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And there's a picture here of people who do that, who voluntarily live that lifestyle, who are being held up in the book of Revelation, being in a very special place. There's one other place that 
I'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and talking about the position of single people in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And a lot of people wouldn't think of this in connection with singlehood, but let's, let's read this closely. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. Now, think about that. What, what sense does that make? One of those has to be literal and one has to be figurative. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she's been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she's brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she's washed the feet of the saints, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they've cast off their first faith. And besides this, they tend to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who really are widows. Now, He talks about taking widows into the number in verse 9. He says, you don't take them into the number unless, first of all, they're over 60 years old, and second of all, she's been the wife of one man. So let's think about that. If this is strictly, if this is simply talking about supporting old, impoverished widows, if it's strictly a matter of benevolence to widows, why would it say, don't bring a widow on unless she's over 60? Number one. Number two, why would it say she only had to have, she could only have had been married once? So you mean to tell me if a woman was married, her husband died, and she remarried, which we already know from 1 Corinthians 7 is totally acceptable to God. And then she's 65 years old. The church is going to say, I'm sorry, but you're going to starve to death because you've been married twice. We're not going to help you out. That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. And then he says the younger widows, if they want to marry, are casting off their first faith when they're wanton and want to marry. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's completely acceptable for someone who is widowed to remarry. So what is he talking about here? There's nothing wrong with remarrying. 
What he's talking about is these are widows. The, the word widow here obviously is used in more than one sense in this passage. He says the widows who are really widows. So, so he's talking about widows, people who are, in one sense he's talking about widows who are people whose husbands died. In another sense he's talking about widows who are members of a, basically a religious order who are enrolled into the number. And there were certain qualifications if somebody wanted to be enrolled in this number. First one is they could not have been married more than once. Second one is he says that they would be uh, over 60 years old. And the reason for the over 60 years old is because he said the younger widows, well, a lot of times they'll want to get married again. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting married again, but he says they would cast off their first faith. I think that's in verse 12. Having con- that those who grow wanton desire to marry, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. There's nothing wrong with remarrying. If you look at different translations, though, Jerusalem Bible says people condemn them for being unfaithful to their original promise. Our New American Bible says, they re- he says, refuse to enroll the younger widows because when they want to marry, this will bring them into cond- condemnation for breaking their first pledge. Mm-hmm. So what happens was someone decided, I want to become a member of the order of widows. He's talking about widows who are spending day and night in prayer. This is a ministry. When someone did that, they would make a pledge that they wouldn't get married again. So he says, look, don't bring the younger women in because they're going to want to break the pledge. So just wait till they wait till they get older. Because if they break the pledge, so widows, someone who's a widow has the right to marry, obviously only Christian, as Paul says, unless they want to become part of the the order, a religious order of widows. So they had there was orders of widows and orders of virgins in the church, people who would make a commitment that they would not marry or not marry again. And this would be a ministry where they were not living in pleasure, not devoted to a life of pleasure or leisure, but it's a, it's a life of, of service. So there are people who are praying day and night and who are, uh, who are, who are devoting themselves more fully to God. That's, that's, the, that's the intention of this. So the widows here are held up as having a very special place in the church. Now, in 1 Timothy, it gives the qualifications for elders or bishops, for deacons, and then here in, in chapter 3, and then here it talks about this enrolling people into an order of widows. <clears throat> it's interesting that the elders, the widow, it says she can't be the, hus- the wife of more than one husband, and then for the elders' qualification, it's flipped. It says the elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife. I've sat in on I don't know how many meetings where people have wrestled with what are the qualifications for an elder in the church. And usually what they'll do is they'll go to to, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and they'll say, okay, first qualification, a husband of one wife, so he's got to be married. And then his children believe from from Timothy and Titus, okay, so he's got to be married, he's got to have children. 
And, well, children is plural, so I guess that means he must have more than one. Now, some people say, well, only one child. Well, no, more than one child. But the, basically, the first thing that people will scan the congregation and they'll look and say, who is somebody who's married, who has faithful children? And then they'll say, because it says in the passage that, they'll say, well, obviously, this is God's plan because if you have done a good job raising your children, you can then take care of the church of God. And that's the logic that's used. So ironically, in a lot of Protestant churches and Anabaptist churches, the only people who can be presbyters are people who are married with children. Whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, the only people who can serve as presbyters or priests is people who are single and have not been married. So it's, it's, it's amazing how you have both extremes. In the early church, it wasn't exactly either way. The expression must be the husband of one wife. In some translations, it will say must be the husband of, of but one wife. It's a question, how was that phrase understood in the early church. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, one of the qualifications for the deacons is it says he must not be double-tongued. Well, is that to be taken literally? What does that mean? He doesn't have a fork in the middle of his tongue or doesn't have two tongues? What does that mean? He must not be double-tongued. Well, <clears throat> we would all say, well, that's a figure of speech. It means he must not speak deceitfully. He doesn't speak with a forked tongue as the, uh, the old Native American expression. All right. So, in, in the early church, the attitude was, the expression must be the husband of but one wife. They say he can't be married more than once. So, in the early church, they had single people who were elders. They had married people with no children who were elders. And they had married people with children who were elders. The requirements were, number one, you must be a blameless man. Number two, you couldn't be, have been married more than once. So single men were not disqualified. Raising a family didn't prove that you were good enough to be an elder. Someone who decided that they wanted to embark on the path that Jesus laid out, held up, of making themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, was not precluded from being an elder in the church. So there were plenty of single and married elders in the church. However, if a man was married, his wife died, and he married again, he couldn't be an elder in the church because of the qualifications, because they took that literally. He must be the husband of but one wife. So, putting this all together, singlehood is exalted by Jesus. And in the church, there was a special place, a special role that single people had. But it wasn't single living for pleasure. The only benefit is if it's single for the purpose, they made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. They're living for the kingdom of God, not for pleasure. I mean, today, let's face it, if you want to lead the most self-indulgent life possible, the single life in America is, is the epitome in a lot of places of self-indulgence, and even in churches. People are just living for the next pleasure, fun, entertainment, where can I go out to eat, what can I do, how can I entertain myself? The single life is a great place 
for people who just want to live a life of complete self-centered indulgence. The only way that a single life is preferable is if it's for the kingdom of God, for righteousness' sake, not for idleness, gossip, and and self-indulgent pleasure. The goal here is to have, I believe, is to have a balanced scriptural view of married and single life. We'll close with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The last two verses, verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she's happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Just as a little bit of of backup, some background for how was this put into practice, the scriptures that we read in the early church. I'm going to read just a few selections. This is from Justin Martyr, writing around the year 160. He says, some women, even though they're not barren, abstain from sexual relations. Some of these women have remained virgins from the beginning. Others have become celibate later in life. We also see men who remain as virgins. Athenagoras, the year 175. You would find many among us, both men and women, growing old unmarried in the hope of living in closer communion with God. Tertullian around the year 205, we read in no place at all that marriage is prohibited, for it is a good thing. What, however, is better than the good thing we learn from the apostle, who indeed permits marrying but prefers abstinence? How far better it is uh, neither to marry nor to burn. Tertullian, by the way, was a, was a married man. And then uh, the last one is... Uh, is uh, from Methodius around the year 290. He said, Celibacy among humans is a very rare thing and difficult to attain. For we must think of virginity as walking upon the earth, yet also reaching up to heaven. Amen.